Welcome to the Midlife Midsters podcast, your podcast for inspiration on being bold and saying yes to making the most of midlife. We're so glad you've joined us for this episode. Today, we'll be interviewing author Betsy Withicum. Betsy released her debut novel, The Murder of Sarah Grosvenor, last year and is working on a new novel. And we're going to be talking to her about her inspiration and the writing process. But before we get started, I think we'll have the Midsters introduce themselves. I'm Leslie Ann. I'm Michelle Gennerty. I'm Marla. And I'm Betsy Withicombe, and I'm pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Betsy, for joining us. So I have an unusual question that I'd like to start with. Tell us how you came to have an office in your laundry room. That's an excellent question. Um, I am a proud wife and mother to five children, plus a bonus six. And when the pandemic hit and everyone came home from school and were working in various places in the house, uh, their rooms and then other places, and my husband had commandeered the study, um, and I decided to write the book, I needed a place that could be my own, and that place was the laundry room. So I set up a card table there. I now have an actual desk. Um, But I set up a card table next to the washing machine and dryer, and, and that's where I sit to work. So I've known Betsy for a while, and and what I know about her and what intrigues me about her and made me think she would be a wonderful guest for our podcast is that in addition to being a mother to five children, um, she has so many interests. Betsy is a great photographer. I watch your peace photos every day on on Facebook, Um, and she's also a very accomplished cook. Uh, She is an advocate for military families in Congress. She's a local advocate for issues in Arlington County. And so you weren't lacking for anything to do. And I'm just wondering, why write a book? Like, where did that come from? Uh, Yes, I I do have sort of a panoply of things in which I have my hand. um, And I enjoy all of them. Uh, I'm an avid reader myself. I really enjoy books. And... um, I'm also our family's genealogist and have been for about 30 years. So during the pandemic, I had discovered through some genealogical work uh, the story of my second cousin, eight times removed, Sarah Grosvenor. Um, And there were some unusual records attached to her name when I did some database searches and I started looking and her story just really haunted me. And I I was stunned that I myself uh, have a degree in American studies, which is sort of kind of an interdisciplinary sort of thing with history and sociology and archaeology and anthropology, and a minor in women's studies and um, anthropology, and that I, I didn't, and she's my cousin, and I didn't know this story. I was flabbergasted. And my husband and I, as many families I know did during the time of the pandemic, took evening walks together, the the forced marches of the pandemic when we all needed to get out and um, get a little exercise, fresh air, and, and maybe a little distance from each other. And um, we were walking, and I kept saying to him, you know, there's this gap in Sarah's story that is just really interesting to me, and I can't stop thinking about what happened during that time. Um, and again, stunned that there weren't any, there were a couple academic uh, papers that referenced Sarah, but there wasn't anything more than that. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to write this. I want to write this down. And even if the only person who ever reads it is my mother, um, Sarah's story will have been protected and preserved. And that was important to me. So I did it. I had the time. We were all locked down. I had the time. Betsy, you just mentioned you wanted her story um, 
protected and preserved. So talk a little bit more about what that means to you. Mm. Uh, it means a great deal to me. Um, I think, I think regardless of where you are politically, I think we can all agree that we value our basic fundamental human rights. Um, and in Sarah's case, she, she didn't have access to those despite an enormous amount of agency. Um, and as a woman now in midlife, I look back on choices I made or uh, options or opportunities I had or didn't have. And I'm still sort of stunned by how uh, limited in some ways my life was as a young woman. I certainly don't want that for my daughters. And one of the things that was truly remarkable to me about Sarah's story is that it happened almost 300 years ago, and yet it could have played out today in exactly the same way. Um, and I think part of that is we as a society aren't getting enough exposure to stories like Sarah's. So we don't understand the long legacy of, of difficulties that young women in particular have had. And now at midlife, I'm looking at what do I want to do with the rest of my time here? And I do not want it to be wasted. And I do not want my girls to hit midlife and be battling for the same sort of equality and agency that I have been battling for for 55 years. So the goal here was to advance that ball. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what Sarah's story was. Sure. Uh, Sarah Grosvenor uh, died in 1742 after two botched abortion attempts that were forced upon her by her boyfriend, essentially. Um, they tried first an abortifacient, which is a powder that's referred to in the 1700s as taking the trade. And when that was not successful, her boyfriend subjected her to an unsafe manual abortion. And it caused, I think, probably an infection. And she and the baby both died. Um, and... When I talk about her lack of agency, her father at the time of her death was the justice of the peace in the community in which she lived. So he could have brought charges against the wayward boyfriend and the pseudo doctor who treated her, and he chose not to do that. It was also a community that was only about 300 people strong, and everyone in the community knew what happened to her, and everyone pretended that it didn't happen. Um, when I wrote the book, it was really important to me that this not be used as a cudgel by either the far right or the far left to kind of prove a point about reproductive rights. That was not the point. The point to me that was so stunning um, was that for three years, until charges were finally brought against the two men in 1745, for three years, an entire community pretended that this young woman did not die uh, unnecessarily. And that was really, really striking to me. And so I wanted to talk about that cover-up and the, the personal and societal penalties we pay for covering things up like that. So let me ask you, I'm just curious, when you ended up following this life of Sarah and you found out how she did die, how did that make you feel? Were you expecting anything like that? Um, I was not expecting all that I found. Uh, to answer the first part of your question, I was infuriated. Um, it was it was it was infuriating. Uh, here we are, three hundred years later, and uh, my girls are still battling a dress code at their middle schools, right? And and that's really making it a very that's a pedestrian example, right? But that's what we're talking about um, on a grander scale. So it it was infuriating. Um, I had the real luxury 
um, as a writer and researcher of being able to use the transcriptions from the depositions taken by, for the men and women who were arrested for this crime. I had to order an old English dictionary. I didn't have to, but I did because I wanted to make sure I was translating them correctly. Because, of course, in 1745, this was still a British colony. It was subject to British laws and, and rules and judicial system. So and everything was written in this old English. And I wanted to make sure I was absolutely translating it correctly. I became more infuriated the more that I learned. Um, of course, it is historical fiction, so some of it came out of my imagination. But the things that I read in the deposition um, were discouraging, um, demoralizing. Um, there's a section where um, one of the perpetrators uh, essentially uh, claims that she was asking for it. Um, there's another section where her sister, who tried to help her at various points through her, her the journey toward her death, um, was labeled as insane. You know, we've always known she's kind of crazy um, and sort of discounted in that way. Um, and so I became more and more angry as time went on. And that was actually a really interesting thing because um, I had to table some of that, right, in order to tell the story correctly because it wasn't about my rage. Well, right. it seems like when you first started it, it was more about answering the mystery. Like Correct. you were wondering what happened to Sarah and then to end up in this emotional devastation of what happened to her. I can just imagine how heavy that must have been. Correct. It, it was difficult and it consumed a lot of my thoughts and a lot of my time and uh, my mental sort of time, emotional time. Um, but uh, once I settled on the narrative, it came pretty easily. I will say that. And it was very important to me. Um, I chose a child as the hero, and I chose a young woman as the hero, and that was important to me. So, um, I was curious. A lot of writers talk about how they always had a book inside of them, and you shared that you almost stumbled on this. Right? Um, did you always have a book inside of you? And this time that you had both in terms of midlife and the pandemic and finding this mystery in your history um, compelled you to do this or, um, yeah, mm, the origins just just waiting. And then this became that book that you didn't know was inside of you. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting question, because I think um, and again, uh, you're all women. This is a women in midlife. So I'm going to kind of stick to orienting my comments around women. <laughs> so I'm going to make some gross generalizations here, but I don't want any gentlemen who are listening to think I don't care about them because I do. But I'm just I'm going to reference this as a woman uh, to other women. Um, I think uh, for me, as a woman who chose to be married and have children and work inside my home, primarily, I have worked outside the home, but only really on part-time sort of contractual type basis. Uh, basis. Um, and as a creative person, um, I always struggled to find creative outlets. Um, it doesn't take a lot of gray matter to load a dishwasher. Um, and folding laundry is rewarding in the sense that your family is, is clothed in clean clothes and well-dressed, but it's not in incredibly taxing work. Um, and so I was always seeking opportunities um, through photography, painting, baking, um, gardening, whatever I could do to have some sort of creative outlet. Uh, creative outlet. And as I said in the beginning of, of this chat, um, I am an avid reader, so I love books um, and I love a good story um, and I like to tell a good story. I like a good oral narrative. Um, and I think I had 
absolutely no expectation uh, for this book. I wrote it for myself because the question of what happened in the three years between 1742 and 1745 when the charges were brought was just vexing me. I had to figure it out and I had to write it down. It was important to me as a family genealogist that I get this story on paper uh, about what happened to my cousin. And it was important to me as a woman that I tell a story about women and their history um, and, and add this to the pile. There's this significant pile. People just don't know it. But there, there's a lot out there uh, that still needs to be read and discovered and watched and listened to. Um, so I don't think I had any agenda here other than one for myself. And I think if I may, um, I'm rambling on a bit here, but as I have hit midlife, I do more things for myself. I do more things because they satisfy me, not necessarily anyone else. And I have always had the luxury of not caring particularly what other people think of me. My, my mother has a doctorate in marriage and family therapy, and she did her dissertation on shame. And um, so it was a big deal in my house to not shame people. It's really one of the worst things you can do to people. But as a consequence, I, I don't think too much about what other people think about me. Um, I'm sure I'm not everyone's cup of tea. I, I like to think I'm friend to all, but I recognize that that's probably not true. Some people don't get where I'm coming from or whatever, but that doesn't matter to me. So I didn't feel a risk that other people might feel in writing this book because at midlife, I have nothing to lose. I'm doing it for myself. It doesn't matter to me if anyone ever reads it. It's wonderful that people are. It's wonderful that it's been so successful. I'm kind of shocked. Um, but that wasn't my intent. I did it for myself. And for the first time at midlife, I'm starting to do more things just for myself. It's so refreshing, that outlook. That's exactly why we gather every week to talk about this. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. How did it feel when you finished? Um, it felt great. I mean, I, I felt like I had done this incredible thing. You know, I'd the, the stats on this are less than 2% of people who start out to write a book finish it. So statistically speaking, this was probably not going to happen if you look at those stats. So having finished it was kind of amazing. Um, I, I remember distinctly kind of standing back and looking at it and thinking, well, now what do I do with this thing, you know? <laughs> um, and I will say that uh, the book I'm working on now, the second book is coming a lot harder. You know, we all make jokes about one-hit wonders with, with the music business, right? Well, I get that now. Um, because the, his first book was very well received um, and there has been specific positive criticism or, and, and accolades. Um, and so now I'm trying to match that. And I didn't have that pressure with the first book, right? I had, not, again, nothing to lose. Feels like I have a little more to lose this time. Still don't really care so much and I'll still put out what I put out. But it's definitely a different, different animal the second time around. One of the things that intrigues me, because I I also have a family story, it's actually my husband's family, that I find very fascinating. And it's a series of letters that were written by his great-great-grandfather to his wife during the Civil War. And I always thought it would be really interesting to write a story about her based on what's revealed about her in his letters, because her letters to him obviously didn't survive. Um, and, and maybe tell it in the form of letters, like, so write her lost letters. But I stop because like every time I think about it, I'm like, I wouldn't even know where to begin. So one of the things that fascinates me about what you did is, like you said, there's a gap and some of this is fiction. So you, you have real history, you have depositions, 
and yet you're filling it in with your imagination. And I, I, I'm just so impressed by that. How, where did that come from? How did you think through what the story would be? Mm. Well, thank you for the compliment. Um, it's a puzzle, right? Uh, you know, you, we don't know what happened during that time. I have the depositions. I can tell what happened as, as the story reached its completion, but I can't tell about the beginning. So when I looked at the puzzle, uh, Sarah has, Sarah had, I think of her in the first, in the, in the present tense, which is interesting. Um, Sarah had siblings, uh, both uh, whole siblings and half siblings. And when I looked at the family tree and thought about who could successfully agitate, who could say in this small community, this isn't right, I want this fixed, I want someone held accountable, it had to be someone who didn't understand what he or she had to lose. It had to be someone who was a little naive in that regard, um, because this was a big issue and a contentious issue and a shameful issue. And so when I looked, I realized that her sister, Rebecca, was nine when she died. And what if this young girl, this child, had witnessed all of these adults and young adults um, facilitating Sarah's death in some ways and then covering it up in many ways? And what if she said she who did not have any political affiliations within the community, wasn't dependent financially on anyone in the community, from her perspective, I mean, she's a child, right? But, you know, Sarah's father and the man who was charged in her death, they they were very prominent businessmen in the community. And when you have a small community like that, your lives are pretty interwoven. And so it's difficult to bring up things that are contentious or might damage those relationships. But a child wouldn't understand that exactly. Um, and I decided that she was the perfect hero. She was the perfect agitator. Um because she was a child and she didn't know what she had to lose. And then I worked from there. I, I worked up from there. Um, writing for me is as much a creativity as it is a discipline. Um, and again, uh, at middle age, I'm more disciplined than I might have been in my 20s. And I'm willing to sit through the difficult parts that I might not have been. I might have been more frustrated in my 20s had I taken this on. And said, so this is too hard. I don't have time for this. There are things I want to do. I don't want to think so much about this. Um, but as a, a more mature adult, I have a lot more patience now. Um, and, and I'm more interested in getting to the truth and in getting things right. And again, this is historical fiction, so I can't claim that it's entirely the truth. But I will tell you, ladies, I've sort of convinced myself this is what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I actually believe that what I wrote really happened because um, it makes sense. You told me a, a, a little anecdote about a gentleman that you encountered who had read the book and was really moved actually by one of the parts of the book that was fiction. Can you share yes. that? Yes. Yes. Um, I was really, really touched. I um, We attend a, a great church uh, in Arlington, Virginia, Rock Spring. And I was there at coffee hour outside, and a, a man in his 90s came beelining over to me with his walker um, as fast as he could come. And I thought, oh, dear, you know, what, what's, what's happening now? And he came and he said, Betsy, I read your book. And I said, you did? Well, thank you. I, I was startled. I mean, a 90-year-old man reading this book, and, you know, you read the book jacket, you know what you're getting. Um, and he said, I have a couple questions. And he asked me about the origin of the phrase, taking the trade. 
um, using abortive fashions. And I, I said I'd researched that pretty heavily. I don't I don't know well, how why it was called that. That's simply what they called it. And it was very common practice, very common. Benjamin Franklin wrote a manual on home safe abortion. This is you know it, it's been going on forever. Um, and then he couldn't remember his second question, so I waited. And then he started to get tearful, and he got a lump in his throat, and he had trouble speaking. My husband was standing next to me, looking kind of uncomfortable. And finally, uh, this gentleman managed to say the scene in the wardrobe. And that really touched me because that was a piece I had brought out of my imagination to fill in a gap. And so the fact that a 90-year-old man could read this book and be so touched by something fantastical that happened to a little girl hidden in a wardrobe was, was a true compliment, and it really meant a lot to me. And, and that, you know, again, talking about how you feel about things in midlife, you know, when I was younger, I probably would have wanted to win a Pulitzer. I would have wanted to do, you know, all, all kinds of fancy things, you know, go to different um, special events and things like that. And now I'm just really moved that something that I have to say resonated with this man so deeply that he had trouble speaking. And to me, at my stage of life, that really matters to me. I don't want to diss my children here, but, you know, I spend a lot of time with people rolling their eyes at me and saying, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, so it's really great to, to, to produce something that people paid attention to. I find myself repeating myself a lot because I think it's because people don't listen to me. And so I find myself repeating. So it's just, it was a lovely feeling. It was a terrific feeling. And I'm very grateful for it. I just love that you had the confidence to do all this. I just think that's so inspiring. Hmm. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, I think I think if we all slow down and think about what we really want, what really matters to us, I, I told Leslie in another conversation she and I had outside the studio here that um, I know when I am grumpy that if I go and look at the calendar, I haven't had any alone time in about six weeks, because I'm an introvert, and that matters to me, and six weeks is about the mark where I really can't take it. Um, and I haven't done anything creative. And it took me a long time to get to that. Um, when I was a child, my parents wanted me to be an artist. I had private painting lessons at home. I attended a variety of art schools. Um, you know, I went to traditional public school, but in my off hours, I did that. Um, I learned photography at a very early age. And my parents really pushed me to do something creative with my life. But I was a kid and I thought, how do you support yourself doing that? And so I picked early on in my life sort of a more, a more business type career, a less creative career. And boy, were my parents right. And now in midlife, I can look back and say, sorry, mom, um, <laughs> I should have listened um, because it really is true. That's how I'm wired. And I tabled that for a long time. Um, and I guess now again, um, and it sounds so um, grim to talk about being on the downslope, right? But I am. I realize now I have a finite amount of time and I want to spend it doing the things that um, fill me up. We talk a lot here at, um, at the Midsters about saying yes. I, the more and more I collaborate with others, all of you included, it's so nice that in midlife we are actually saying yes and we're going for it. And you did exactly that. I can't wait to see what you do next. Well, thank you. Uh, it, it's a gift I got from my mom, actually, from the time I was very small. And I've always done it with my children. My mom said, always ask, what's the worst thing that someone can say? No, then you're, you're no worse off than where you started. Um, so I've always been an asker. And I've 
I've always been a say yes to the point where I've had some unusual experiences in my life that probably I should write a book of essays about um, because I say, sure, that sounds good. That's why I'm here, you know, because um, I said yes to this. Uh, but I think it's something that we can teach our daughters um, so that they don't hit midlife and start to try at midlife to figure out how to do this, right? If we teach them early on how to say yes to experiences and opportunities and how to to orient uh, their educations, their social interactions, um, their service activities, to open the doors for those sorts of things, then it is much less scary when you hit 55 and you're no longer a full-time parent anymore and you're struggling with what your identity is. Um, it's much less scary to feel, uh, you're, you don't feel as adrift, right? You feel like, oh, I have something I can offer. I have something I can do. I could try this. And you know what, if this doesn't work out, Okay, I'll try something else. You know, one of the things you said earlier was about discipline, right? And um, maybe share your thoughts on besides confidence and the ability to say yes and discipline, what are some of the other really important characteristics that we need to have when we're opening ourselves up to those new adventures and trying things that maybe... Like you said, you would love to write this book, but something's holding you back. What What are those other qualities that you found um, that really help you get over that hurdle? Mm. Or maybe not you. Right. Maybe the rest of us <laughs> uh, get right. over that hurdle. Right. The the larger you. Um, well, I, I think in terms of, you know, Leslie's comment about wanting to write the book, uh, you have to summon the courage to do it. And, and, and some of summoning courage is a discipline. So that's part of it. Um, but sort of piggybacking on the idea of saying yes to things, I think it's equally important in midlife to understand finally you can say no to things. You can say no to things that don't serve you. You can say no to things that take up precious time that you don't have anymore that you want to spend doing something else. And saying no is very difficult if you've said yes for a long time. So that becomes a discipline as well. And it's uncomfortable and people don't like it. Um, they often say that uh, setting you can't set boundaries and have people like you or like it. Um, so you have to be willing to, to deal with that. And I think that translates, too, into the writing process, for me at least, into some of the creativity. Um, there are times where you say no to yourself. This isn't working. This approach isn't right. I'm going to start over. I'm going to throw out this entire chapter because even though I wrote it beautifully, and boy, it's lovely standalone, it doesn't work for the rest of this project. And I think you have to have the courage and the discipline to say no as much as you say yes. There's definitely a balance there. I think saying yes all the time is dangerous. And I think saying no all the time is dangerous. One piece of the courage I just want to touch on is that when you wrote the book, I, I think everyone knew what was coming down the pike in terms of abortion rights in the United States. And, and you said you didn't write it to be a, a speaking piece for either the right or the left. You wrote it because it's a historical story that relates to your family. But were you worried at all, like where, how this could be received? Because there is politics in the bigger world. Sure. Um, well, I'd like to say first, I wrote three books during the pandemic. Um, and one of them, I, I just didn't feel it was where it needed to be. Um, the other one, Makes me feel nervous. It's the one I'm working on re-editing now. It's kind of it's going to be contentious. I think it's going to be difficult. It's another hard topic, um, and I wasn't sure about it. And I wrote Sarah Grovner, 
And I knew I wanted to try publishing. I thought, you know, well, I, I need to pick one. So let me do this one. So in January of last year, a year ago, January, um, I decided to publish that one first. And we set a publication date of May 16, um, unaware that then come that time in May, the SCOTUS leak would happen. So that was a big surprise. And it was not intentional. And um, it really, uh, the drop ended up being much more significant than I thought it was going to be when the book dropped. Um, so that was was a big surprise. So so part of it was um, completely unintentional. Um, this was not the first book I intended to publish, um, but I ended up doing it because I wanted to try to be published. I wanted to see if I could do it. And um, so I put it out there because it was the one manuscript I felt was most ready. Um, I was nervous um, about the the subject matter, and it was really important to me um, to let everyone know that I'm I'm open to discussion about it. Um, and I've had some difficult feedback at large book talks, and I've had some, I guess they would call it trolling on social media and through my email. But it's very clear to me that more often not than not, the people who are having trouble with my work are people who haven't read my work mm-hmm. uh, because the questions don't make sense um, when compared against the manuscript. So I'm very open to that. And I just say, I am happy to engage in any kind of discussion that you would like to have about my work, but I need you to read it because I can't talk about things I didn't write. Um, and again, I think... I. I don't want to say that's easy for me, but it hasn't troubled me very much because I, I knew I knew this was a difficult topic for a lot of people. Um, and as much as I worked very hard to make it about the cover up and the lack of agency, it, it's a book about it, it features an abortion. I mean, the, it, it's going to come up. Mm-hmm. It's going to come up. So I was prepared for it. But again, I have five children. There's nothing anyone hasn't argued with me about. <laughs> <laughs> so you said the next topic's a little controversial what what are you writing about now um it is i'm not entirely uh, ready to discuss that i don't have my elevator the elevator pitch quite the way I, where i want it to be i've written it several times it's just not quite right i will say um, i'm mining uh, family history again um, this time from my husband's side a very tangential branch of his family tree um, has a really interesting pattern over several generations of decision making and it got me thinking about, um, I, I believe genealogy is is much like a horoscope. Like it's super fun, but you shouldn't make big decisions using it. That's that's my personal opinion. I know some people do star charts. I mean, cool, that's great for you. It doesn't work for me. I like to read my horoscope. I think it's kind of fun. I'm not making big life decisions based on my daily horoscope. And I sort of feel the same way about genealogy. And I got to thinking about how interesting it is that something can be a repeated pattern or a repeated uh, set of decision-making processes across generations. And is that because people want to make those decisions and want to be participating in those patterns? Or is it because our family narrative tells us we're supposed to, that this is who we are? As a Withacombe, this is who you are, you know? Um, And so I'm sort of examining that, you know, how healthy is that? to decide that we have courage because our five times removed great-grandfather fought in the Revolutionary War. Well, we know he fought, but do we know, was he conscripted? Did he go kicking and screaming? Did he try to run? Did he go AWOL? We don't know. And yet many people are kind of making life's big decisions 
based on family narratives that may not be entirely um, factual um, or helpful. And so the the book kind of examines that. But it, it, I think it's going to be um, it's going to be an interesting read. I think that's what I'll say. Children and your husband must be so proud. Ha. Um, Yes, I think uh, my husband is very pleased. He is probably my biggest cheerleader. And um, uh, I sit here with all of you uh, speaking on all these topics, and it's wonderful. Um, and But I would be remiss if I didn't admit that I do have self-doubt, um, that I do, uh, even in middle age, I still have self-esteem issues. I still think about the kid in high school told me I should cut bangs because my forehead's weird or whatever. You know, I mean, you, you hang on to these things all the way through to midlife, right? And so if you, I think in midlife, you get to the point where you're ready to silence those things, right? You're, you're, I'm done with this. I'm done of, of thinking about what happened in 10th grade. You know, that's enough. Right. But I think it's really difficult to undo some of those patterns. And my dad was kind of a tough customer. And so when I went to push the button to send the, the manuscript to, to the editor to go to the publisher, I hovered over that button, <laughs> over that return button. I hovered over it. And I, I could hear, you know, voices in my head saying, no one's going to buy this. No one cares what you think. You're a middle-aged woman with five kids who works from home. You know, you're in the laundry room next to the washer and dryer. Who, you know, <laughs> who's going to care about this, you know? Um, and, you know, and uh, the momentary, will I make a fool of myself? Will pe- people think less of me for any positions they read into the narrative that I've composed here? You know, all those self-doubts. And my finger hovered, man. But I knew that my biggest cheerleader was down in the kitchen drinking his chai tea. And if I didn't push that button, he'd come up there and put his finger on top of mine and help me push it. Um, and so I pushed it and went down. And and so, I, yes, I am. The rest is history. I am very grateful uh, for the role Kent plays in my life as a big supporter. Um, and he's always saying to me, you're not a housewife. You're not married to the house. Um, and I say, uh, yes, but I'm, I'm proud of what I've done. I'm proud of the choice that I made to be with my children and to help them grow into good citizens. Um, and so I, I don't have any compunction about, about talking about that or saying anything about that. My children are great. Um, my youngest daughter doesn't like to read, and I found her by the pool reading the book. And I said, you're reading the book? And she said, you're my mother. You wrote the book. I'm reading the book. <laughs> Um, and she was quite upset with the ending. She she had no qualms about telling me, you know, your ending stinks. I don't like it. Um, and I said, I didn't make that part up. That's what really happened in the end. And so I don't I don't like that. Um, so yeah, they're they're as proud as nineteen to thirty year olds can be. You know, they've got their own lives. They're doing their thing. So that's a way to get kids to read. Write a book, and then they'll have to read it because you're their mother. That's right. That's right. Any last thoughts you can leave us with in terms of taking on a challenge or an adventure? Mm. Um, I think I highly recommend it. Um, There certainly have been points of this particular process for me, this particular adventure for me, that have been um, anxiety producing, that have been frustrating, uh, that have... uh, consumed maybe more of my time than I'd like. You know, certain arguments we were talking uh, before the recording started today about the length of the book. I had to argue with someone about that. You know, there, there, there have been some things that maybe haven't been super fun, but the rest of it has been super fun. It's been super fun to prove at this time in my life, again, when I'm transitioning from 
being a full-time parent and um, and really engaged in all of those things that we all engage in when we have young children at home, that I have something here to offer. I have something I can do. So I highly recommend it. Um, I would say it doesn't have to be expensive and it doesn't have to be a big deal. You don't have to split an atom, you know, to prove your worth, right? Um you can prove your worth to yourself, who's who's really the only person whose worth you need to prove it to your own worth to, right? I'm not saying that very eloquently, but you're you're proving to yourself um, in the back end of your life, at midlife in the back end, um, your own worth. And it can be simple things. It can be simple things. Get up in the morning and do the next right thing, you know? Um, something small. Learn to plant something in the garden and watch it thrive. Perhaps even a tree, you know, there's there's the the really profound expression, plant a tree whose shade you don't expect to sit under, right? Do that. Um, you can, maybe perhaps you've never read much nonfiction. You've always been a fiction reader. Read some nonfiction. Learn something new that way. These don't have to be monumental achievements in midlife to make midlife incredibly satisfying. Um, they can be small, helpful, nurturing kindnesses to yourself that you can do very easily, very inexpensively, and with a very small block of time if that's all you have. And it can be incredibly powerful in terms of reframing the way you look at the rest of your life. You happen to be sitting with four women that are adventurous and say yes to a lot. <laughs> but I do know we have a lot of listeners that will appreciate what you just said. The spectrum of saying yes from being small to being large and finding what's right for them. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. I think those small moments mean a lot. The big ones are super fun, right? Mm -hmm. um, chartering boats. Uh, I have a friend who's done. Yes, <laughs> yes. I have a friend who's uh, who's talking about getting group people together for a castle. You know, like and doing a summer at a you know all that's great. But you're right. There are a whole swath of people who are going to be listening to you and all of your wisdom on these uh, podcast episodes who don't have the resources or the time or the energy or the good health or, or other sort of limitations that would prevent them from taking a risk or accepting a challenge or saying yes to something. And sometimes when you do have limitations, saying the simplest of yeses is an incredible victory. And don't deny yourself that. Um, mastery is is what breeds self-esteem. So, so mastering even the smallest things can really improve your beliefs about yourself and can really enhance your life experience. And that's what we're all here for, right? To feel good. We want to feel good. Bessie, thank you so much for agreeing to meet with us today and for sharing your story. And also thank you for writing the book because I, I have read it and it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's really quite compelling. Well, you're most welcome. I'm really glad that it spoke to you and I really enjoyed my time with here, you here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. And thank you to all of our listeners who joined us today. We hope that you found this to be an inspirational place that can help you figure out how to make your midlife the best that it can be. Um, we would like to know what you would write about if you had the time and the space to write your own novel. What sort of things interest you? So reach out to us at our website and you can share your ideas at www.americanmidsters.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-A-N-M-I-D-S-T-E-R-S, all one word, dot com. We can't wait to hear from you about your midlife adventures. Bye.